Hello and welcome to Tabling the Podcast. My name is Ariana Karp and I'm here with a wonderful group of actors that's going to take us through the epic Act 4. That is the Act 4 of King Henry IV Part 2. We just left the uh, countryside with Justice's Shallow and Silence. Wonderful comedic characters and we met some of the recruits moldy bull calf shadow wart and feeble wonderful names and we're now going to go back to the battlefield for the first time and we're going to see the encounter of the rebellion and the king's forces in a very different kind of battle than we saw at the end of part one with the battle of shrewsbury um so we sort of uh take up uh, the action uh, with the rebels in the forest of Galtree, as we will find out in the second line of this scene. Take it away whenever you are ready. <laughs> what is this forest called? It's Galtree Forest, and shall please your grace. Here stand, my lords, and send discoverers forth to know the numbers of our enemies. We have sent forth already. It is well done. My friends and brethren, in these great affairs, I must acquaint you that I have received new dated letters from Northumberland. Their cold intent, tenor, and substance thus. Here doth he wish his person with such powers as might hold swordens with his quality, the which he could not levy, whereupon he is retired to ripe his growing fortunes to Scotland and concludes in hearty prayers that your attempts may overlive the hazard and fearful meeting of their opposite. Thus do the hopes we have in him touch ground and dash themselves to pieces. Now, what news? West of this forest, scarcely off a mile in goodly form, comes on the enemy. And by the ground they hide, I judge their number upon or near the rate of 30,000. The proportion that we gave them out, let us sway and face them in the field. What well-appointed leader fronts us here? I think it is my lord of Westmoreland. Health and fair greeting from our general, the Prince, Lord John, and Duke of Lancaster. Say on my Lord of Westmoreland, in peace, what doth concern your coming? Then, my Lord, unto your grace do I in chief address the substance of my speech. If that rebellion came like itself in base and abject routes, led on by bloody youth, guarded with rage and countenanced by boys in beggary, I say, if damned commotion so appeared in his true native and most proper shape, you, reverend father, and these noble lords had not been here to dress the ugly form of base and bloody insurrection with your fair honors. You, Lord Archbishop, whose see is by a civil peace maintained, whose beard the silver hand of peace hath touched, whose learning and good letters peace hath tutored, whose white investments figure innocence, the dove and very blessed spirit of peace. Wherefore do you so ill translate yourself out of the speech of peace? that bears such grace into the harsh and boisterous tongue of war, turning your books to graves, your ink to blood, your pens to lances, and your tongue divine to a loud trumpet and a point of war. Wherefore do I this? So the question stands. Briefly to this end, we are all diseased, and with our surfeiting and wanton hours have brought ourselves into a burning fever and we must bleed for it, of which disease our late King Richard being infected died. But my most noble Lord of Westmoreland, I take not on me here as a physician, nor do I as an enemy to peace troop 
in the troop in the throngs of military men, but rather show a while like fearful war to diet rank minds sick of happiness and purge the obstructions which begin to stop our very veins of life. Hear me more plainly. I have an equal balance justly weighed what wrongs our arms may do, what wrongs we suffer and find our griefs heavier than our offenses. We see which way the stream of time doth run and are enforced from our most quiet there by the rough torrent of occasion and have the summary of all our griefs when time shall serve to show in articles which long ere this we offered to the king and might by no suit gain our audience. When we are wronged and would unfold our griefs, we are denied access unto his person, even by those men that have done us wrong, that, that most have done us wrong. The dangers of the days but newly gone, whose memory is written on the earth with yet appearing blood, and the examples of every minute's instance present now hath put us in these ill-beseeming arms, not to break peace or any branch of it, but to establish here a peace seed, concurring both in name and quality. Whenever yet was your appeal denied? Wherein have you been galled by the king? What peer hath been suborned to grate on you that you should seal this lawless, bloody book of forged rebellion with a seal divine? Oh, I have... My, my edition has, and consecrate commotion's bitter edge at the end. Oh. Ooh, that would be a, a folio quarto difference we've got going Interesting. on. Interesting. There's All a right. couple that are coming up that I wanted to note uh, in, in, in some of the scenes, but that's an important important point that there's there's there are pretty radical variations between the quarto and the folio of this play oh wow okay sorry um my brother general the commonwealth to brother born and household cruelty i make my quarrel in particular there is no need of such any redress or if there were it not belongs to you why not to him in part and to us all that feel the bruises of the days before and suffer the conditions of these times to lay a heavy and unequaled hand upon our honors? Oh, my good Lord Mowbray, construe the times to their necessities. You shall say, indeed, it is the time and not the king that doth you injuries. Yet for your part, it not appears to me, either from the king or in the present time, that you should have an inch of any ground to build a grief on. Were you not restored to, the all, to all the Duke of Norfolk signories, your noble and right, well-remembered fathers? What thing in honor had my father lost that need to be revived and breathed in me? The king that loved him as the state stood then was forced, perforce, compelled to banish him. And then that hauling brook and he being mounted and both roused in their seats, their neighing coursers daring of the spur, their armored staves in charge, their beavers down, their eyes of fire sparkling through the sights of steel and the loud trumpet blowing them together. Then, then, when there was nothing could have stayed my father from the breast of Bolingbroke. Oh, when the king did throw his water down, his own life hung upon the staff he threw. Then threw he down himself and all their lives that by indictment and by dint of sword have since miscarried under Bolingbroke. You speak, Lord Mowbray, now you know not what. The Earl of Hereford was reputed then in England the most valiant gentleman. 
who knows on whom fortune would then have smiled. But if your father had been victor there, he ne'er had borne it out of Coventry, for all the country in a general voice cried hate upon him, and all their prayers and love were set on Hereford, whom they doted on and blessed it graced, indeed, more than the king. But this is mere direct digression from my purpose. Here come I from our princely general to know your griefs, to tell you from his grace that he will give you audience, and wherein it shall appear that your demands are just, you shall enjoy them. Everything set off that might so much as think you enemies. But he hath forced us to compel this offer, and it proceeds from policy, not love. Mowbray, you overween to take it so. This offer comes from mercy, not from fear. For lo, within a ken our army lies, upon mine honor all too confident to give admittance to a thought of fear. Our battle is more full of names than yours, our men more perfect in the use of arms, our armor all as strong, our cause the best. Then reason while our hearts should be as good. Say you not then our offer is compelled. Well, by my will we shall admit no parley. That argues but the shame of your offense. A rotten case abides no handling. Hath the Prince John a full commission, in very ample virtue of his father, to hear and absolutely to determine on what conditions we shall stand upon? That is intended in the general's name. I muse you make so slight a question. And take my Lord of Westmoreland this schedule, for this contains our general grievances. Each several article herein redressed all members of our cause, both here and hence, that are insinued to this action, acquitted by a true substantial form and present ex execution of our wills. To us and our purposes confined, confined, we come within our awful banks again and knit our powers to the arm of peace. This will I show the general. Please you lords, in sight of both our battles, we may meet and either end in peace, which God so frame, or to the place of difference, call the swords, which must decide it. My lord, we will do so. Let's pause here for a second because we just covered a, a lot of ground here. Um, wow, so we're in a very different place than we were with, with uh, shallow and silence. We're just, it's like we're in a different, different world here. Um, a lot of new characters. Uh, I mean, I mean, not not new so much as um, we haven't seen them since the first play. By which I mean Westmoreland, who's one of the king's chief allies and was actually half brother to the king uh, through his his brother-in-law to the king through his marriage. Um, so he's very very high up in the kingdom and was quite a power broker in part one and sort of continues this uh, this role in in part two. I just wanted to to go to uh, our page 66 at the at the top of the scene and just go through this archbishop's speech about Northumberland um, and just make sure that we were all kind of clear about what happened to Northumberland. What 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 was your impression, Mike, as, as you were reading this of, of, of what Northumberland's message message to the rest of the rebels is at this point? Um, basically, he was going to be our our backup our reinforcement with this army that he was going to muster. And he's like, uh, shit, sorry, I couldn't, couldn't muster one. So I'm going to go to Scotland and try it there. But yeah. like, you know, so, and I'll see if that works. So he's, it's bad news. He's not coming. Yeah. Right. And we, and we get that wonderful line from, from Mowbray immediately after the hopes we have in him touch ground and dash themselves to pieces, which I think is a phenomenal 
image and also um, the ground here also means the sort of like the bottom of the ocean, essentially, that there that these hopes that we're lifting up have now just sunk and been destroyed. So Northumberland is just not a very re reliable ally, it seems. He, he just does not show up. He doesn't keep his promises and he leaves his allies in a quite a lurch here. I mean, they're they're up against 30,000 men, which is exactly how much Hotspur was up against at, at the Battle of Shrewsbury. Um, and this is only a portion of that army um, that was there at Shrewsbury. So it's it's an interesting... It, we never really get a sense of, of how many uh, soldiers are in the rebellion that is here. Um, we're never sort of given that number, which is unfortunate because it would be interesting to know what, oh, the, yeah. <laughs> what the balance was. Um, so then it comes in a messenger. I love messengers. <laughs> They're so cool. They always have the scoop. <laughs> um, and it, yeah, I think, I think something that I, 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 honestly, I can't remember if I mentioned it in, in this particular radio player, if it was in a previous one, but that messengers were like, pretty much the only way of getting information. There weren't newspapers at this time. So messengers are highly important and everything they bring in is usually new information. So that's always something to keep in mind whenever there's a, um, uh, when, when, if we were staging this, for example, you know, it's like so much about the silent reactions of the characters whenever a messenger comes in with new news. Um, let me see. So then in comes Westmoreland. I, 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 I don't, I get the impression it's a surprise that he's coming to the camp. Did did anyone else g get that vibe? <laughs> totally. Um, like, because I was like, didn't we just have a messenger and now we have another? Mess well, yeah. Yeah. Surprised by that. Was yeah. he announced? He wasn't even announced, was he? No, not at all. Oh. There was no sort of fanfare or or tuck it, my favorite Shakespearean word for a trumpet. <laughs> um, there was no tuck it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> well-appointed leader fronts us here, um, which is such a wonderful internal stage direction for us that Westmoreland is like very well dressed <laughs> and like very much, uh, has like the best armor. Armor is something that is, uh, as we discovered when we staged Henry the fourth part one, is really essential part of battle gear. And um, it's it's sort of um, it's like PPE, right? It's it's the personal protective equipment of these people, <laughs> um, which is sometimes very difficult to find, and it's very valuable when you have it. In in Henry V, which will be the next play that we're exploring, there's a whole scene about the the imagery on the French armor, and I, I was that a sun or a star I saw on your shiny armor, and they just get into all of these conversations about the images and the symbols. Um, on the armor. Um, they, were, they were objects of great importance in these battles. So, Ellen, tell us about this, this first big speech um, of Westmoreland. It's a, it's a sentiment that's going to be repeated by Lancaster, but there, there seems to be an, an awful lot of attention on the Archbishop and his... Um, yeah. Yeah. Tell us, tell us about your, your impressions of the, the speech. I mean, reading it through this first time, first it, I was struck by like, gosh, I just love... Um, how it was structured, the speech. Mm. Uh, and, but yeah, he's clearly is zeroing in on the archbishop saying, you are a really religious, devout, like good person. Why are you, uh, 
now leading these rebels into war. Like, this isn't like you. This isn't kind of berating him, I suppose. Um, the dove and very blessed spirit of peace. He talks about all this, this great antithesis at the end, turning your books to graves, your ink yeah. to blood, pens to lances, tongue to trumpet. Um, like, really, um, yeah, zeroing in on the archbishop and sort of attacking his you know morality i suppose saying like what are, what are you doing here basically absolutely um, absolutely and there is something a little bit I, it seems to me that he's accusing him of using his position as a religious leader oh yeah different kind of um justification to rebellion like painting mm -hmm. the face of rebellion as it were <laughs> oh totally yeah yeah was, I, I loved um i loved reading it it's just just a really, it seemed to really come out of his mouth also, like he's been thinking about what to say on the mm. way over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's been, he's given this some thought. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Kind of falls out. Yeah, it's great. And I think it's it's important to note we're still in a in a Catholic world, right? Um, we haven't we haven't broken from Rome yet. That was Henry VIII. A couple Henrys later, um, but we and so the Archbishop. Um, is though it's important to note the archbishop of york and the archbishop of canterbury are the two most high highest the two highest ranking members of the church within uh the realm so they are they are very 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 high up in terms of their relationship with rome and the church has an um like unfathomable amount of power at this time they have a huge amount of money and a huge amount of power. Um, they are sort of like their own aristocracy. They're almost like another, another wing of power within the realm that the king often had to contend with. As we've seen in some of the, the plays that we've looked at so far, that's sometimes a very contentious relationship, as it was in King John when King John decided that the money from the, the abbeys and the priories was going to pay his war expenses, which resulted in a cardinal from Rome. I think one of the only times we see a cardinal in one of Shakespeare's plays comes in and basically um, says, take it back or we're going to excommunicate you. He then, King John then doesn't, is excommunicated and then reinstated an act later because I'm completely convinced that King John is a... Um, parody of a history play, um, as well as being quite a good history play. Then we have um, another bishop in at the end of Richard II howling with rage at, um, at Henry IV and basically making the argument that you are going against God by putting yourself on the throne and predicts quite accurately that um, future ages will howl for this and will this is a huge, huge mistake, um, which he has kind of proven right in that civil war is the result of Henry taking the crown. Now we have the Archbishop of York, who's an even higher than these bishops, who is obviously very, very, very much integrated into this rebellion. Did you get a sense, um, Mike, of what the griefs are exactly from, from this big first speech of yours, the wherefore do I this? Yeah, he's not real specific, right? Um, <laughs> I think he, he's even got that line where he's like, uh, in, in due time, you'll know, like, get all of our grievances on paper. Yeah. And, and then, of course, he gives them to him at the end. But um, that one line is just so strange. What he says, uh, when Westmoreland asks, asks him again, he says, my brother general of the Commonwealth, 
to brother born a household of cruelty, I make my quarrel in particular. So I, I looked at that lineup and it was kind of strange. Like uh, he's talking about his brother was killed. Yes. 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 Um, his brother was one of the bishops, I believe, who maybe it was the abbot of Westminster. I'm not sure. I'm going to have to look this up. I'm going to make a note to look it up. But in Richard II, I think his brother was one of the people who expressed gotcha. um, maybe the Bishop Carlisle, although Henry let Carlisle go and be free at the end of that play. Um, but I will look up who his brother was. But yes, there, it, people also saw executing the clergy as kind of being something you don't do. Yeah. Um, it's fine to execute the nobles, but don't ex execute the clergy. Yeah. Um, but the clergy were executed um, at times, and to accuse them of treason is a very big thing to do in this time. Um, okay, I'm going to write down. But so when he says my brother general, I thought he was addressing Westmoreland, but he was talking That's what about... I thought. I think he's talking about the Commonwealth, actually. I think the brother, my brother general is the commonwealth meaning the state okay. or the nation my brother uh, and it's can you say mike what your line after that is because we don't have the line after that in our version um oh of that same yeah my brother general the commonwealth oh that's all you have then we have i make my quarrel in particular so what is your oh Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. when I looked this up, it was like they said sometimes it gets jarbled or lost, or and this is sort of like a weird thing that they put in there or whatever. But yeah, my brother general, the... your brother born a household. Brother. So that's that's born. also why I thought he was saying my brother general was the address, and then the Commonwealth. He's like, oh, it's because of the Commonwealth, and also you want me to cut that part? No, 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 no. Keep it in. That's absolutely fine. <laughs> But yeah, it, it does seem more, and, and, and I think Westmoreland has a wonderful line where he says, construe the times to their necessities, and you shall say indeed it is the time and not the king that doth you injuries. To me, that's very telling. It seems to me that these rebels are not quite quarreling. They're quarreling with the time as opposed to the king. The time meaning like the time of, just society in general or the time? What is that? Yeah, I think if we go to, to Mowbray's suffer the condition of these times, um, I think huh. he's talking about the, the, the nature and the state of the, this time that they're, that they're currently living in and to lay a heavy, heavy here, meaning brutal or oppressive and unequal. Again, there's that wonderful unconstruction meaning sort of unjust or unfair hand upon our honors. And then Westmoreland's response is construe the times to their necessities. So sort of interpret or take the times to their inevitable conclusion. And then you will say, indeed, it is the time and not the king. So it, as, as opposed to as, a sort of general... It seems that they're they're unhappy with their their particular rank and position in the kingdom, which has more perhaps to do with the changing of um, this. This is around the time where the middle class is also sort of being born. And this would be a group of people who suddenly have more power and money than the aristocracy wants them to have. And this could be another reason that um, 
that these nobles are, are kind of bemoaning the, the loss of some of their power. Because, of course, there's this idea that there is a finite amount of power. <laughs> and uh, if anyone has some, it means less for you. But it is, it is surprisingly opaque, their, their complaints. Um, unlike in Henry IV Part One, where Worcester has this wonderful scene with the king where he kind of lays it all out and says, we put you in power, you have ignored us, you have not um, given us our due, and you're in fact oppressing us to the point that we feel it necessary for our own safety to raise an army against you for our own protection. Right, and that's very clear, that's a very clear, this seems to be a little bit more convoluted. And in fact, I think it's, it's part of the reason that Westmoreland keeps saying, like, what are your griefs? Were you not restored? Like when he says to Mowbray, again, a very important name from Richard II, you were given all of your father's lands and titles and rights back. What is your problem, <laughs> essentially? And uh, Mowbray has this wonderful, you know, let's go back a couple plays to Richard II and describe the scene. Um, which seems to be happening quite a lot in this play, going back to Richard II and describing the scene. What do you make of of, of Mowbray, Danny? What what what? Um, you, we got a little taste of this character at the end of Act One, and he certainly has a, a couple more lines now. Um, do you, what is your impression of of Mowbray and his reasons for being in this? Um, he seems uh, disgruntled and frustrated. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the biggest sense I get. Like, you know, I don't, I'm not too familiar with his history, um, but that he just wants to like fight or I don't know, mm. he's um, a hot headed rebel or something and <laughs> maybe not so rational. I'm, I don't know. That's just the sense I get. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a wonderful observation. I, I must say that Westmoreland to me seems to be the most sort of grounded with his language and his reactions in, in, in this scene, um, which doesn't bode very well for the rebels. I think just to mention one of the difficulties again of staging these plays is that so many characters have multiple names and multiple titles that apply to them, which can get very confusing. Um, I remember changing a couple lines in Henry IV because they kept talking about March, who is Mortimer, who is a character we meet once. And it can get very confusing to the audience. Who the hell is March? Um, and here we have, you know, we're talking about Bolingbroke, who is really Henry the Fourth, but who is also known as the Earl of Hereford and Lancaster and Darby at one point. So it, it can get very, very confusing and, and difficult for the audience to sort of track who's being talked about. I, I, yeah. Were there, were there any other observations up until the, the stopping point uh, of this interaction between Westmoreland and the Archbishop and Hastings as well? They do get some grievances at the end out, right? Yeah. Westmoreland says, okay, fine, I'll go tell them what it is. Yeah, <laughs> but it's like... Show the general what it is that you want. Yeah, but it's interesting that we don't actually hear what's on the paper, right? It's just, this oh, is okay. these are our grievances on this piece of paper. And we've all agreed to these grievances, which is like, great. What are your grievances, bro? Like... 
What are they? I want to know. Inquiring minds want to know. Are they like writing them right in front of them? Just to be like, oh, they <laughs> like hastily writing down. Yeah. I love that, that idea. That's hilarious. Because like, he's break. got that line. <laughs> Coffee he's got break. that line at the beginning where he's like, he's like, you'll have them in a second. That's what Hastings is doing. Hastings is like writing them down. That's all Hastings is doing. And Hastings just writing and then is just like, all right, is this what is this what he wants? Like what's happening? And then hands it to the archbishop who like writes down one more at the end. It's like and I want a new set of robes. <laughs> I kind of feel like this could be a meeting. I, I don't know why I do this, but I always like to imagine these scenes in modern, like how would modern television interpret this scene? And it seems to be like, it's a meeting in a conference room. Yes. And there's like a disgruntled employee. We're talking with the manager who's like, okay, but like, you can't go on strike because that hurts everyone. And you're not actually helping anyone here. This is a problem. And it's just kind of this very like, anyway, I, it's this yeah. seems like, it could be a really fun, funny, actually kind of administrative scene. <laughs> yes. Oh, definitely. Uh, just tell me what you want. Yes. Oh, <laughs> exactly. I lo- oh, I love that. And I, I think it's it's important, right, to, to sort of find what, what can we as contemporary audiences um, cling to and see as, uh, as uh, uh, analogous situations in our own contemporary life and how can we do that? I, I loved in... Um, King John, I was in a rather weird production, but one of the uh, initial meetings was sort of staged as a press conference, which makes sense because the language is very flowery and kind of over the top and nobody is really talks like that. And it's, it's an interesting, and then like half a scene later, everyone finally talks like human beings, but it's like, there's something very public about the beginning of that scene and like, oh, how does that manifest itself? Oh, it's a press conference. So I think it's always it's always a good idea to uh, to to find those those um, situations. So Westmoreland is, is is then exiting right with this <laughs> so-called post-it note slash um, <laughs> um, sealed and signed and approved demands, and then we we are left alone with um, with uh, Mowbray and Hastings and the Archbishop to sort of discuss what just happened and what should they be doing next. There is a thing within my bosom tells me that no conditions of our peace can stand. Fear you not that. If we can make our peace upon such, upon such large terms and so absolute as our condition shall consist upon, our peace shall stand as firm as Rocky Mountains. Yea, but our valuation shall be such that every slight and false derived cause, yea, every idle, nice, and wanton reason shall to the king taste of this action, that were our royal faiths martyrs in love, we shall be winnowed with so rough a wind that even our corn shall seem as light as chaff and good from bad find no partition. No, no, my lord, note this. The king is weary of dainty and such picking grievances, for he hath found to end one doubt by death revives two greater in the heirs of life. And therefore will he wipe his tables clean and keep no telltale to his memory that we that may repeat and history his loss to new remembrance. For full well he knows he cannot so precisely weed this land and his as his misdoubts present occasion. His foes are so enrooted with his friends that plucking to unfix an enemy, he doth unfasten so and shake a friend. 
so that this land, like an offensive wife that hath enraged him on to offer strokes, as he is striking, holds his infant up and hangs resolved correction in the arm that was upreared to execution. Besides, the king hath wasted all his rods on late offenders, that he now doth lack the very instruments of chastisement, so that his power, like to a fangless lion, may offer, but not hold. Tis very true. And therefore be assured, my good Lord Marshal, if we do now make our atonement well, our peace will, like a broken limb united, grow stronger for the breaking. Be it so. Here is returned my Lord of Westmoreland. The prince is here at hand. Please, if your lordship to meet his grace, just distance between our armies. Your grace of York, in God's name, then set forward. Before and greet his grace, my lord, we come. Wonderful. Um, okay, so I just want to talk about the shocking domestic abuse that happens at the end of the archbishop's speech. Like, my god? Um, an offensive so. wife that half enraged him to, like, start beating her, and then as he's striking, she holds up his child, so he stops. Yeah, it's such what a weird... What the fuck? <laughs> what the actual fuck? That yeah. is so messed up. I can't even deal with how messed up it is. Anyway, it's I just bizarre. wanted to say that. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's how the archbishop rolls. What can, yeah. what can I tell you? <laughs> yeah. My god. I just wrote, yikes! Oh my god! In my script. Oh, yeah. Like, he hears a lot in confession. Yeah, <laughs> no kidding! My god! Whoa! That, anyway, that just bowled me over at the end of that speech. Anyway, I'm sorry, Alan. What was that? No, I think it would be funny if that was like a choice that he made. He was trying to connect with men. And he yeah. Was like, so, when wife, <laughs> this is how it works, right? Yeah. You know, she gets really, Women, right? you, but then she holds up her, you know? <laughs> Am I right, guys? Am I right? I mean, being a member of the clergy, I don't have a wife, but I'm assuming this is how it works. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> oh, God. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> Besides. <okay>. Yeah. <laughs> moving on. Yeah, mo yeah, that's a big moving on moment. It's like, oh, well. <laughs> can we pivot? <laughs> pivot? <laughs> um, it's, yeah, anyway, I, I just... Wow, that just shocked me. The, and there, and then this, like, amazing, like, the Archbishop just has wacky imagery. Our peace will, like, a broken limb united grow stronger for the breaking? What right. imagery That's world right. did you grow up in, Mr. <laughs> Archbishop? Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. I'm not, I'm not super digging uh, the Archbishop <laughs> as the leader of the rebels right now. <laughs> not not how not, bones not, work either. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> not how this piece is going to work either <laughs> yes <laughs> indeed <laughs> that's a very good point liam <laughs> none of this will actually work <laughs> um but it is it is really interesting to me the the archbishop has all of this really really singular imagery in, in in this scene so far we're all diseased we've got to purge the disease um broken limbs beating wives like it's just very i think you can tell a lot about someone by the imagery that they use right um that happens a lot in 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 shakespeare for example iago uses a lot of animal and bestial imagery 
and uh, and Othello doesn't use any in the first half of the play. And then when Iago sort of corrupts his mind, Othello starts saying things like goats and monkeys, where he's sort of like, it's almost like he takes on the images that Iago has, has been brewing mm. in his mind. And I, I, I definitely see like, if you look at Macbeth and the way that his imagery just gets darker and darker and more and more depressing and violent, there is something that you can tell about a character by the images that they use. Falstaff, for example, has a huge amount of amazing imagery, which we're going to see this, this act about eating and drinking and in particular drinking and what it does to your body and how good it is for your body. Um, well, that doesn't so seem on brand at all. No, not at all. <laughs> not on brand. But yeah, anyway, so I just thought that would, that was interesting to note that the, the archbishop, uh, has this kind of remarkably violent and sort of corrupted imagery, um, which in a way makes makes sense to me. That, um, but yeah. Uh, anywho, we then uh, in the folio. This is a continuous scene. Uh, Lancaster just enters with his with his army, and we continue from there. Um, in a lot of editions, this is a separate scene. Um, so shall we jump right into it? And here we are meeting another one of, uh, well, another one. We haven't met the other two. Um, this is one of uh, Prince Hal's brothers. This is his, uh, one, two, th this is his, the third son of uh, Henry IV, uh, who we met who's, uh, in part one. You are well encountered here, my cousin Mowbray. Good day to you, gentle Lord Archbishop, and so to you, Lord Hastings, and to all. My Lord of York, it better showed with you when that your flock assembled by the bell encircled you to hear with reverence your exposition on the holy text, and now to see you here, an iron man talking, cheering a rout of rebels with your drum, turning the word to sword and life to death. That man that sits within a monarch's heart and ripens in the sunshine of his favor, would he abuse the, the countenance of the king? Alack, what mischiefs might he set approach in shadow of such greatness? With you, Lord Bishop, it is even so. Who hath not heard it spoken how deep you were within the books of God to us, the speaker in his parliament to us, the imagined voice of God himself, the very opener and intelligencer between the grace, the sanctities of heaven, and our dull workings. Oh, who shall believe but you misuse the reverence of your place, imply the countenance and grace of heaven as a false favorite doth his prince's name in deeds dishonorable. You have ta'en up under the counterfeited seal of God, the subject of his substitute, my father, and both against the peace of heaven and him have here unswarmed, upswarmed them. Good, my lord of Lancaster, I am not here against your father's peace, but as I told my lord of Westmoreland, the time misordered doth in common sense crowd us and crush us to this monstrous form to hold our safety up. I sent your grace the parcels and particulars of our grief, the which hath been with scorn shoved from the court. 
whereon this Hydra son of war is born, whose dangerous eyes may well be charmed asleep with grant of our most just and right desires, and true obedience of this madness cured stoop tamely to the foot of majesty. If not, we ready are to try our fortunes to the last man. And though we here fall down, we have supplies to second our attempt. And if they miscarry, theirs shall second them, and so successive mischief shall be born, and heir from heir shall hold his quarrel up, whilst England shall have generation. You are too shallow, Hastings, much too shallow to sound the bottom of the aftertimes. Please, if your grace, to answer them directly, how far forth you do like their articles? I like them all. And do allow them well, and swear here by the honor of my blood. My father's purposes have been mistook, and some about him have too lavishly rested his meaning and authority. My lord, these griefs shall be with speed redressed. Upon my soul they shall. If this may please you, discharge your powers unto their several counties, as we will ours. And here, between the armies, let's drink together friendly and embrace that all their eyes may bear these tokens home of our restored love and amity. I take your princely word for these redresses. I give it to you and will maintain my word. And thereupon I drink unto your grace. Go, Captain, and deliver to the army this news of peace. Let them have pay in part. I know it will well please them. Hi thee, Captain. To you, my noble lord of Westmoreland. I pledge your grace, and if you knew what pains I have bestowed to breed this present peace, you would drink freely. But my love to you shall show itself more openly hereafter. I do not doubt you. I am glad of it. Health to my lord and gentle cousin Mowbray. You wish me health in very happy season, for I am on the sudden something ill. Against ill chances men are ever merry, but heaviness foreruns the good event. Therefore be merry, cuz, since sudden sorrow serves to say thus, some good thing comes tomorrow. Believe me, I am passing light in spirit. So much the worse, if your own rule be true. The word of peace is rendered. Hark how they shout. This had been cheerful after victory. A peace is of the nature of a conquest, for then both parties nobly are subdued, and neither party loser. Go, my lord, and let our army be discharged too. And, my good lord, so please you, let our trains march by us, that we may peruse the men that we should have coped withal. Go, good lord Hastings, and ere they be dismissed, let them march by. I trust, lords, we shall lie tonight together. Now, cousin, wherefore stands our army still? The leaders having charge from you to stand will not go off until they hear you speak. They know their duties. My lord, our army is dispersed already. Like youthful steers unyoked, they take, uh, they take their courses east, west, north, south, or like a school broke up, each hurries towards his home and sporting place. Good tidings, my lord Hastings, for the which I do arrest thee, traitor of high treason. And you, lord Archbishop, and you, lord Mowbray, of capital treason, I attach you both. Is this proceeding just and honorable? Is your assembly so? Will you thus break your faith? I ponder thee none. I promised you redress of these same grievances whereof you did complain, which by mine honor I will perform with a most Christian care. 
But for you rebels, look to taste the dew, meet for rebellion and, and such acts as yours. Most shallowly did you these arms commence, fondly brought here and foolishly sent thence, sent hence. Strike up our drums, pursue the scattered stray. God, and not we, hath safely fought today. Some guard these traitors to the block of death, treason's true bed and yielder up of breath. Whoa. Whoa. Mm-mm. That escalated quickly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's some shady shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. That is um that is some definite play on words there. Your grievances will be redressed, however, you will die a horrible, violent death. Thoughts? <laughs> that was sneaky. Sneak attack. Yeah. Uh, I just I feel bad for Mowbray or Mowbray because Mowbray is the only one that's like, guys, something feels kind of weird. And yeah, like, yeah. Hastings about this. Like, <laughs> Hastings of like, nah, bro, like just keep going. <laughs> Fine. This is really good wine. They wouldn't yeah. give us really good wine unless they wanted peace. <laughs> like, yeah, everything yeah. everything's fine. Don't worry about it. And Mowbray's like, no, something's weird. And Archie's <laughs> like, oh, we have God on our side. And everyone else is like, no, you don't. And then uh, yeah. uh-huh. I felt like there was a a dun 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 kind yeah. of moment when um well Westmoreland suddenly had this like incredible um, alliteration. This like these all these sounds yes the sudden sorrow serves to say yeah something slippery is happening (laughs) it's wonderful how those sounds cue you into because i i remember having this uh discussion with a professor of mine when i was in university that s's can be both sinister and soothing right the way that um s's are used by, for example, Yago and Westmoreland in this moment, they're very sinister and kind of snake-like. And then yeah. um, in, for example, Henry V, when he's talking about sleeping in Elysium, there's this like yearning for soothing sleep, right? Yeah. Which we already saw Henry IV yearning for sleep as well. It's a family trait. It goes on to Henry V. Quite a turnaround in a very short amount of time. And not at all um like the kind of battle that we saw in part one which kind of leads me to just throw in that this is a political war not a not a war about who has a better strength just as a drop it in there if anyone agrees or disagrees with that (laughs) well I do want to bring up one little point from part one, and that was Worcester. Uh, Worcester, yeah. Worcester saw through this. Like, he yeah. was expecting this, you know, last time. And that's why he doesn't tell Hotspur that, you know, we're, we're, we're not going to give up. You know, whatever they give us, you know, it, it's it's going to be a snake thing. And and now we finally see that, you know, yeah, he was totally right. <laughs> that's a wonderful point, Liam. It's like the rebels are missing their equivalent of Henry IV, who was a quite brilliant political mind, but Worcester was just as brilliant of a political mind, but Worcester is now dead, and they don't have their power broker anymore. They don't have their person who is a a creature of the court who sort of knows about the way that it works and all the 
I mean, it's amazing to me the growth of also, I would love for you to talk about this, Liam, the growth of the character of Lancaster, who went from being a silent character in a few scenes and having like, I think, eight lines in Henry the Fourth Part One to being kind of the mastermind of getting the rest of the rebels um, captured and destroying their army. Um, he was probably by this time in in real life, he was probably like 15 or 16 but these yeah. these kids had a huge amount of responsibility. I mean, I think it's it's important to note that all of the the sort of it was a legend that Prince Hal was kind of a a wastrel as a youth because he was actually a governor from the age of about fourteen. He had a huge amount of responsibility and was very much. He was 16 during the Battle of Shrewsbury and got an arrow to the face. You know, I mean, he, he was he was very, very involved with the military and sort of administrative affairs of the country from from a very young age. And his brothers would have been as well. Um, it is just interesting to note how much responsibility these kids had. I mean, it's, it's kind of extraordinary. Yeah. For that audience, it must have been a really exciting turn of action. Yeah probably was really exciting to see what had happened uh, to mm. their rebels and how they got squashed up. Absolutely. Because this oh, is yeah. a different kind of squashing <laughs> yeah. than, than capture and capture because of a force of arms, right? This is, this is very much about Minister maneuvering. Yeah, yeah. It, it really does seem it's like kind of the floor drops out. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of hard to tell really who the audience is rooting for in a way because yeah. Bolingbroke is, you know, they, I don't know, I think it kind of devolves from, they're like talking about like the old excuse of Richard has become kind of old and yeah. worn by this point and uh, the archbishop's reasons seem very personal and yeah. now they're just like cheating. So I, I feel it's like, it's kind of clever, but it's also kind of cheating. Yeah. And, <laughs> um, I'm not sure who, and we kind of, the king, but he's Bolingbroke, who stole the crown, you know, so you're not really sure. Uh, it's, it's, I don't know if people are like, yeah, you tricked him, or like, eh, it's kind of slimy. And yeah. <laughs> Should have let him fight. I, I totally agree. I totally agree. Liam. Yeah, no, totally. Uh, like for me, I get the I get the feeling it, it's like it's like a like the mafia, right? You got <laughs> you know, the son of the the head boss here, and and these guys just screwed up. You know, they were doing something wrong. You know, like they they you know backstabbed some way, and then you know they're, he's just being nice until he's not. You know, yeah. He's looking to yeah. This mm. is very much a leave the gun, take the cannoli moment. You know, it's right? Like, <laughs> it's sort of like. You know that Paulie was going to get it, but um, it, it's it's still shocking nonetheless um, in, in, in the film. God, I love that movie. <laughs> it's so good. Who's betraying who honorable or not? I'm sorry, Rhoda, what was that? Yeah. Who's betraying who and who's being honorable or not? Yeah, that's a, it's a good point. I mean... Rebellion was definitely very frowned upon during during Shakespeare's time, um, and it's a dangerous word. Almost on par with treason, but not quite not quite as bad. Treason was still the absolute worst thing you could possibly commit, which is why it's a big deal when Westmoreland is arresting them for high treason. 
that contained the worst, most painful and gruesome death that um, could possibly be suffered during this time, which had to do with hanging, drawing and quartering, which was sort of not being killed once, but thrice and uh, ending with your, your head on a spike at the entrance to London um, as a warning to other people. I mean, this was, I think, also just important to note that I think the Elizabethans, even though this is obviously not written about the Elizabethan times, there's always some flavor of that world in, in these plays, that they were very, I think they were much closer to death in a way than we are. I think they, they witnessed people dying with much more frequency than, than we do um, in the street, from the plague, um, we're going through our own plague right now, um, through public, I mean, public executions were common and they were almost to the point of being a form of entertainment. Um, and so I think that all the time, yeah, it's, it's, it's disturbing how it's just interesting to think about what their, their world was like in terms of their sense of violence perhaps was a bit different than, than ours. What constituted some, uh, like a a violent crime when their government was summarily executing so many people every year. <laughs> you know, it's like... Have you ever seen, there's a, there's like a great little talk between uh, Antonin Scalia and Stephen Breyer and they, they bring up the death penalty and they bring up, uh, you know, like at what age are you allowed to execute somebody? And like, I think they dropped, they bumped it up to like 14 during one case or whatever it was, oh my God. but it was um, Scalia brought up an interesting point. He was like, you know, the death penalty, was the only penalty for a felony up until like only a, 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 a maybe a hundred years ago. I mean, it, it, civil war times, it was like, if you committed a felony, if you stole somebody's horses, they executed you. They yeah. hung you. I mean, anything. It was just like, that was your punishment basically. Yeah. So it's just interesting because it's, it's, that was just a kind of a common thing to do. It was like, oh yeah. You overcook fish, jail. You undercook <laughs> chicken, believe it or not, jail. <laughs> Great, great reference, Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> not so my my question about that, I guess, is do you do you think? Because I don't know, but do you think that that's potentially because of uh, of the ties with the government to the church at this time that there's more more of a they're more desensitized to that, or that's like seeing seeing the government doing that um, kind of in the name of God. Do you think that that has anything to do with it or is that that's an interesting that's definitely a very interesting point sam that there there was definitely a connection between with the divine right of kings that the head of the government and therefore the government is sort of justified in in their acts of violence that's a really good point yeah i i, I don't know i mean i know that that the hanging obviously uh which we get a lot of imagery of people hanging and oh, I'll be hanged as an expression, um, was the punishment for uh, robbing anyone, right? As, as you said, Mike, the punishment for hanging was, uh, the punishment for hanging, the punishment for robbing or thieving was hanging, which uh, very sadly is what happens to Bardolph in Henry V. Um, he stole from a French church as he was a, a soldier and is hanged for the offense. Yeah, I think that it was, it was a bigger part of their lives, but I, I get the sense that Shakespeare was not comfortable with violence, and particularly violence on a mass scale. There is a, a kind of 
trepidation about mob mentality that permeates a lot of the a lot of the plays in my reading. But of course, we all project our own political opinions onto writing. We try and find it everywhere. <laughs> Do you think this betrayal, uh, well, of you know, the Archbishop, in any way foreshadows Hal's betrayal of Falstaff at the end? Hmm. Interesting. Like he, because they don't see it coming, and nor does Falstaff. Right. That's an interesting. A, another little twist, just to prepare you. We're going to give you another big twist here. At the mm. That's fascinating. Favorite. I mean, they like him. The audience. Yeah. Very much. I always wonder about that moment. I'm I'm looking forward to what what we make of it when it happens because we really have only gotten one moment with Hal and Falstaff together in this play so far. And that's the only moment we're going to get with them together until that fateful, very sad moment where there's the rejection. But yeah, betrayal is definitely something that runs through this, this, this play, whether uh, by political necessity or personal necessity. Uh, I mean, I think we get it with Northumberland kind of betraying the rebellion and the hangover of him betraying his own son by not showing up. Um, so I think, yeah, personal betrayal is, is definitely a very big part of this play. That's a wonderful observation. Um, and what constitutes loyalty, you know, and why is loyalty breached? Yes, absolutely. And when, and, you know, as, as these, the rebels say that their consciences will not allow them to continue loyal subjects and take all this lying down. Um, and, and when is that justified, if ever? I don't think we get an easy answer on that from, from any of the history plays. Yeah, wonderful. So then we see a, a different side of this <laughs> encounter, as we always do when Falstaff enters. Um, and we have a, a new scene where Falstaff, who was very late to show up, uh, suddenly has a spot of luck and comes across a rebel who's looking to be ransomed. <laughs> <laughs> What's your name, sir? Of what condition are you? And of what place? I am a knight, sir. My name is Colville of the Dale. Well then, Colville is your name, a knight is your degree, and your place the Dale. Colville shall still be your name, a traitor your degree, and a dungeon your place. A place deep enough, so shall you be still Colville of the Dale. Are not you, Sir John Falstaff? As good a man as he, sir, whoe'er I am. Do you yield, sir, or shall I sweat for you? If I do sweat, they are the drops of thy lovers, and I weep of thy and they weep for thy death. Therefore rouse up fear and trembling, and do observance to my mercy. I think you are Sir John Falstaff, and in that thought, yield me. I have a whole school of tongues in this belly of mine, and not a tongue of them all speaks any other word but my name. And I had but a belly of any indifferency. I was simply the most active fellow in Europe. My womb, my womb, my womb undoes me. Now here comes our general. Uh, the heat is past. Follow no further now. Call in the powers, good cousin Westmoreland. Now, Falstaff, where have you been all this while? When everything is ended, then you come. These tardy tricks of yours will, on my life, one time or other, break some gallows back. I would be sorry, my lord, but it should be thus. 
I never knew yet, but rebuke and check was a reward for valor. Do you think me a swallow, an arrow, or a bullet? Have I, in my poor and old motion, the expedition of thought? I speeded hither with the very extremest inch of possibility. I found her at nine score and odd posts. And here, travel-tainted as I am, have in my pure and immaculate valor taken Sir John Coville of the Dale. <laughs> a most furious knight and valorous enemy. And what of that? He saw me and yielded. That I may justly say with the hook-nosed fellow of Rome, I came, saw, and overcame. It was more of his courtesy than your deserving. I know not. Here he is, and here I yield him. And I beseech your grace, let it be booked with the rest of this day's deeds, or, by the Lord, I will have it in a particular ballad else, with mine own picture on the top of it, Coville kissing my foot. To the witch course, if I be enforced, if you do not all show like guilt two pences to me, and I in the clear sky of fame are shine you as much as the full moon doth the cinders of the element, which show like pinned heads to her. Believe not the word of the noble. Therefore, let me have my right and let desert mount. Thine's too heavy to mount. <laughs> let it shine, then. Thine's too thick to shine. Uh, let it do something, my good lord. That may do me good. And call it what you will. Is thy name Coville? It is, my lord. A famous rebel art thou, Coville. And a famous true subject took him. I am, my lord. But as my betters are that led me hither, had they been ruled by me, you should have won them dearer than you have. I know not how they sold themselves, but thou, like a canvas thyself, I thank thee for the... Now, have you left pursuit? Retreat is made and execution stayed. Send Coville with his confederates to York to present execution. Blunt, lead him thence, and see you guard him sure. And now dispatch we to the court, my lords. I hear the king, my father, is sore sick. Our news shall go before us to his majesty, which, cousin, you shall bear to comfort him. And we, with sober speed, will follow you. My lord, I beseech you, give me leave to go through Gloucestershire. And when you come to court, stand, my good lord, in your good report. Fare you well, Falstaff. I, in my condition, shall better speak of you than you deserve. I would you had the wit. T'were better than your dukedom. Good faith. The same young, sober-blooded boy doth not love me, nor a man cannot make him laugh. But that's no marvel. He drinks no wine. There's never none of these demure boys come to any proof, for thin drink doth so overcool their blood, and making many fish meals, that they fall into a kind of male green sickness. And then, when they marry, they get wenches. They are 
generally fools and cowards, which some of us should be too, but for inflammation. A good sherry sack hath a twofold operation in it. It ascends me into the brain, drives me there, drives me there all the foolish and dull and cruddy vapors which environ it, makes it apprehensive, quick, forgetting, full of nimble, fiery, and delectable shapes, which delivered all the voice, the tongue, which is the birth, come, becomes excellent wit. The second property in your excellent cherries is the warming of the blood, which before cold and settled, uh, left the liver white and pale, which is the badge of pusillanimity and cowardice, but the cherries warm it and makes it coarse through the inwards to the parts extreme. It illuminates the face, which as a beacon gives warning to all the rest of this little kingdom, man, to all. And then the vital commoners and inland petty spirits muster me all to their captain, the heart, who, great and puffed up with his retinue, doth any deed of courage. And this valor comes of sherries, so that skill in the weapon is nothing without sack, for that sets it to work. And learning a mere hoard of gold kept by the devil till sack commences it and sets it in act and use. Here comes it that Prince Harry is valiant for the cold blood he did naturally inherit of his father. He hath like lean, sterile, and bare land manured, husbanded, and tilled with excellent endeavor of drinking good and good store of fertile sherries that he has become very hot and valiant. If I had a thousand sons, the first human principle I would teach them should be to forswear thin potations and to addict themselves to sack. How now, Bottle? The army is discharged all and gone. Let them go. Out of Gloucestershire, there will I visit Master Robert Shallow Esquire. I have him already tempering between my finger and my thumb, and shortly I will seal with him. Come, away! Lovely. Oh my God, that Sheriff Sack speech is just what a glorious speech. Before I forget, um, that makes it apprehensive, quick, forgative, um, instead of forgetive. Forgative here meaning like ardent and spirited and like forging a fire. Um, And apprehensive is a very interesting, it had a different meaning in this context. It means sort of quick learning and creative, like very, very fast. Anyway, what a remarkable speech. Uh, I just wanted to sort of open it up for those of you who are in this scene. What are your, what are your thoughts? How is this scene different from our our previous one? And, and particularly for you, Marty, um, uh, tell us, tell us about the, the Falstaff experience <laughs> of this scene. <laughs> the Falstaff experience. Um, well, I, I'm really curious about how this begins. Do mm-hmm. I, have we, have I already gotten him? Does, am I meeting him on the field of bat- battle <laughs> and I'm scared of, am I puffing up to try to, uh, 
scare him or you know, I'm not telling him on Falstaff. I, I, I was sort of thinking that he was, you know, how you become the, you, you kill the big guy and then suddenly everyone's gunning for you. And yeah. so in a way, it's great that the enemy's scared for me, but there might be, got, you know, uh, young guys out there who are trying to, let's go kill us a Falstaff. And, you know, so I might yeah. have to hide my identity. And, and I don't, I, I, I just don't know. It's, su- it's such a weird entrance. And, it is. Um, and how does this scene, what, what is the situation that we find ourselves in here? It could just, it could be just about anything, I suppose. Because I think you know, in, in part one, when we, we did it, it was, um, he, was, he, had his, he was scared to death. He was in the middle of the, a horrible battle. Yeah. You know, the battle hasn't started here. And, uh, you know, he would like puff himself up and, and try to, you know, get through as best he hide. He was yeah. you know, trying to do all these things. And I think some of that's at work here, but, but not, not the same. And um, and it's interesting too when he when Lancaster comes, um, he doesn't seem as obsequious as he was yeah. with Westmoreland. Um, yeah. He seems to be challenging him and and um, you know standing up for himself and saying you know um, almost considering himself an equal here. I, think- I do wonder if it's because Lancaster is Hal's little brother and he's sort of like oh well I know Hal so like you're just his little brother. You know, even though he's the general of this army at this point. <laughs> right. I think that's right. part of it. But Westmoreland is his brother too, isn't he? Um, he's a, Westmoreland is a brother to the king, uh, brother-in-law oh, okay. by marriage uh, to the king. I, you know, it's, it's interesting what you say. I think this is a very different battle. And I think that that maybe is our, is our way in that the Battle of Shrewsbury historically was one of the longest and bloodiest battles of that time period. There was a huge, huge casualty, very violent, very, very long um, for the standards of battle at that time. Whereas this, the army, the rebels army has already been discharged. People are just like going back to their homes when all of a sudden they're being attacked. So the king's side is definitely at a huge advantage. And it, it is my sort of impression that the only people that the king's side is pursuing are the people like the knights and the nobles, the people of name that were a part of this rebellion. So in that way, there's a lot fewer of them to pursue. They're just going to let the soldiers go home. I think that hopefully helps to, to give Falstaff more of a sense of of comfort. He, he's already coming into the battle late, as Lancaster says, but... Um, I think he just comes upon Colville and I think he can be as jumpy as possible <laughs> um, because I, I do get the feeling that I think Falstaff is not a fan of these battles. Uh, he may have been when he was much younger, but he's just like, no, I'm over this shit. I want to go home and drink my share of sack. I, yeah, I, I don't think I want to be a hero. I think, yeah. I think he's, you know, he, he timed it perfectly whether by chance or by design, <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, it's, he's just catching these people running. I am kind of curious too, because they have released the army and they've cheered and they're all heading to their, their homes and stuff. Like why Colville doesn't just leave, you know, why? Yeah. Unless, unless I'm just trying to round up people to um, ransom. Yeah. Um, which, which to me makes a lot of sense. Cause that, that would be a way, another way for you to make money and false is always yeah. looking for ways to make money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it doesn't uh, and i guess you know it gives um it, it certainly gives false staff a, a chance to be um witty and clever and, and just to see someone surrendering to false staff and then to explain to lancaster how it's 
And uh, and then he gets this wonderful speech at the end about the, the benefits of drink. The actually the it's, it's morally right to be drunk. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Let's makes, go to that speech. Living, you know? It's an incredible speech. In fact, there's a lot of productions that, because uh, Henry the Fourth Part Two is not produced as often as Henry the Fourth Part One. There's a lot of um, productions that actually stick this speech into one of Falstaff's soliloquies in when they're doing Henry the Fourth Part One, um, like around the honor speech, they might stick in <laughs> a large portion of of, of this speech. <laughs> To just to get it in there, because it is such a glorious speech about the virtues of drinking. It, it, for, for those of uh, uh, our listeners, sack, which is the, the particular kind of alcohol he's talking about, was a very, very sweet white wine um, from Spain. I've, I've been lucky enough to try sack. Um, it is remarkably sweet. Uh, definitely not my kind of drink. I, I prefer my, my wines dry, but um, the Elizabethans would, would actually put sugar in this already sweet wine. They ate a disgusting amount of sugar. I mean, this is why they all had like rotten teeth. I mean, the, 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 the sheer amount of sugar that they consumed was kind of sickening. Just honey and, every, and sugar and everything. If you want to sort of... From mead? Hu- I'm sorry? Is sack different from mead then? Yes. Uh, mead is made from honey. And oh, so sack would still be so made from from grapes, um, but yeah, it just incredibly like just think of the sweetest possible wine you can, and that Drink is sack. Um, if you've ever had Madeira, <laughs> which is quite um, quite sugary, it's oh. it's similar to that in taste, um, but it, it tastes even more alcoholic, like very high alcohol content. Um, anyway, close to port is that well. Port is a little bit more fortified, right, than 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 wine, but I think it's not quite as sweet. I think if you think of like dessert wines, like sherry, yeah, sherry, like sweet sherry, not like the dry stuff that you use with with cooking. Um, cool. Anyway, very Wait, very sweet. <laughs> sugar consumption. I just think they must have eaten so much sugar because life was very bitter. So yeah. They have- it's somewhere <laughs> it's true it's absolutely true and and as we know um you know even in 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 cooking that um sugar can work similar to salt uh in enhancing flavors that are already in in the dish that you're cooking and they didn't have a huge wide range of spices to use and to perfume and and flavor their dishes so sugar and salt were essential cooking aids <laughs> for sure and also just remembering that they couldn't really drink water. Um, it wasn't safe to drink water. It was much safer to drink beer, um, which, had, which has been processed. So everyone was kind of just drunk all the time because um, that's what they were drink. That's what you drank. Uh, and then there was this wonderful moment with the Enlightenment where people started drinking coffee and suddenly shit tons of stuff started happening and getting done. Um, <laughs> it's no coincidence to me that like coffee was uh, invented for Western audiences and then the Enlightenment happened. <laughs> like, there's definitely got to be a connection to the beverage of choice. <laughs> like, it's got to be, got to be a connection there. I did not know that. Um... Anyway, I love, love that he 
he gives himself credit for anything kingly that Harry, you know, that Hal has is, yeah. uh, is doing because he introduced Hal to drink and he's not as like the straight laced, boring, dry, <laughs> like his brothers. That he yeah. But, uh, I love that the cold blood he naturally inherited from his father. <laughs> it's a great line. <laughs> Well, and I think, so I finally understood this, the the male green sickness, he's essentially, I mean, ma- green sickness was sort of like PMS, what women experience around the time of their period. And he's essentially saying that people that don't drink have a male green, experience male green sickness. And, and then when they marry, they get wenches, get here meaning conceive. They only have yeah. daughters. They don't have sons, which is hilarious considering that Henry IV, whom he accuses of being very cold, begat four sons, which is like, all right, Falstaff. <laughs> but, and interesting, like, I thought it meant that they, they get wench, they marry wenches, but no, they're, they're, they're producing women only yes. anyway it's 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 a very fun uh speech with with many interesting metaphors about like tilling and and cultivating the land as you cultivate yourself with alcohol which is a really interesting image <laughs> um liam tell us about lancaster this is a very different yeah. lancaster than we saw I thought you told me this fat man was dead in <laughs> Henry, <laughs> right. Henry IV Part One. <laughs> I think Shrewsbury must have changed him or something. Yeah. <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> the arc here. Uh yeah. Yeah, it goes to like I, I mean, I feel like like again, he just it feels like like similar to his brother, he just leans more and more into his family after mm. Shrewsbury. Um, you know, like yeah, like he he's I feel like like in the previous scene, he's just really hearkening into his dad uh, and what he did at that one meeting with Worcester. Mm. Um, and then here, I feel like he's he's being very similar to uh, Hal in that in the this scene from uh, from the previous play, where well, and he was present there too when when of course you know Falstaff's like, oh yes, I I killed Hotspur. That's right, that's right. <laughs> it was all me. And then you know. We're just laughing about it then, but you know, uh, but here he's like, you know, I, I it's a uh, like the, the line, you know, I shall speak better of you than you deserve, you know. Uh, it, it's you know, harken back, I feel Liam. That is such a wonderful observation that actually Lancaster is one of the few people in the realm that knows that Falstaff did not kill Hotspur because he was there when Hal said he was going to lie and say. So Lancaster actually does have sort of some dirt on on Falstaff for sure. Um, I think that's part of the chumminess too. <laughs> yeah. That dirt. yeah. But I love I love that idea of yours that he I think it's very important the people on stage that don't speak. That's it's a very important thing in Shakespeare especially if they appear in another play with a totally different skill set. Um that it's very important that um Lancaster is is a silent character in a whole bunch of of these scenes and witnessed this huge political knocking together of heads of his father and Worcester in the previous in the previous play and has gained a lot of political knowledge um from that encounter that's wonderful i love bardolph coming in at the end here <laughs> he's like hey everyone's gone can we go home now like <laughs> so great so wonderful we've done our duty you know it's like probably like bardolph 
sort of marched in, saw it was over and was like, great, and just opened a bottle and like just waited for Falstaff to be done with whatever ridiculous thing he was doing. <laughs> like, can we go home now? I miss East Cheap. <laughs> like, it was pretty fun. Any other observations about this little comic interlude? Our one little comic interlude and a, a rather serious act. <laughs> All right. Well, um, we now, with wings, our swift scene flies, to quote Henry V, all the way to the court and to um, back to King Henry, who, when we left him, was rather ill and is continued to be ill. He is surrounded by um, two other sons. This is the first time we're meeting them. His son, Thomas, Duke of Clarence, who is the after is the second born after Hal and his fourth born son Humphrey Duke of Gloucester who is going to be a very important figure in the Henry VI plays um, as the protector of a very very young Henry VI and also we have Warwick who was in the previous scene with the king who is once again very much a spirit uh, a, a kind of very calming presence in these scenes when I did this play with a group of young people we were putting together um, I just want everyone to note how many times nobody can find Thomas. And we always just wondered, did he like blend in with the tapestry? Because so many times we were like, where's Thomas? Where is he? And he's like, I'm, I'm right here. Um, so just notice how many times. The who saw the Duke of Clarence? He's got an invisibility cloak. Um, yeah. So on we go and uh, have fun with this, uh, this, this, this first uh, scene here. Now, lords, if God doth give successful end to this debate that bleedeth at our doors, we will our youth lead on to higher fields and draw no swords but what are sanctified. Our navy is addressed, our power collected, our substitutes in absence well invested, and everything lies level to our wish. Only we want a little personal strength and pause us till these rebels, now afoot, come underneath the yoke of government. Both which we doubt not, but your majesty shall soon enjoy. Humphrey, my son of Gloucester, where is the prince, your brother? I think he's gone to hunt, my lord, at Windsor. And how accompanied? I do not know, my lord. Is not his brother, Thomas of Clarence, with him? Uh, no, my good lord, he is in presence here. What would my lord and father? Nothing but well to thee, Thomas of Clarence. How chance thou art not with the prince thy brother? He loves thee, and thou dost neglect him, Thomas. Thou hast a better place in his affection than all thy brothers. Cherish it, my boy, and noble offices thou mayst effect of mediation after I am dead between his greatness and thy other brethren. Therefore omit him not, blunt not his love, nor lose the good advantage of his grace by seeming cold or careless of his will. For he is gracious, if he be observed. He hath a tear for pity, and a hand open as day for meeting charity. Yet, notwithstanding, being incensed, he's flint as humorous as winter, and as sudden as flaws congealed in the spring of day. 
his temper therefore must be well observed. Chide him for faults and do it reverently when you perceive his blood inclined to mirth. But being moody, give him time and scope till that his passions, like a whale on ground, confound themselves with working. Learn this, Thomas, and thou shalt prove a shelter to thy friends, a hoop of gold to bind thy brothers in, that the united vessel of their blood, mingled with venom of suggestion, as force perforce the age will pour it in, shall never leak, though it do work as strong as aconitum or rash gunpowder. I shall observe him with all care and love. Why art thou not at Windsor with him, Thomas? He is not there today. He dines in London. And how accompanied? Canst thou tell that? With Poins and his other continual followers. Most subject is the fattest soil to weeds. And he, the noble image of my youth, is overspread with them. Therefore my grief stretches itself beyond the hour of death. The blood weeps from my heart when I do shape in forms imaginary the unguided days and rotten times that you shall look upon when I am sleeping with my ancestors. For when his headstrong riot hath no curb, when rage and hot blood are his counselors, when means and lavish manners meet together, oh, with what wings shall his affections fly towards fronting peril and opposed decay? My gracious Lord, you look beyond him quite. The prince but studies his companions, like a strange tongue wherein to gain the language. Tis needful that the most immodest word be looked upon and learnt, which once attained your highness knows comes to no further use but to be known and hated. So, like gross terms, the prince will, in the perfectness of time, cast off his followers and their memory, shall as a pattern or a measure live, by which his grace must meet the lives of the other, turning past evils to advantages. Tis seldom when the bee doth leave her comb in the dead carrion, Who's here? Westmoreland? Let's oh, uh, pause there for just a second um, and, and go through this this first section because we've got a lot of, whoo, we got a lot of speeches. This is an act of long speeches, isn't it? It is. It, re it truly is. Um, so, uh, Eric, tell me about, about your impression of the king uh, from, from, from so far. Um, I'm, I'm very, very curious about the, uh, about the speech that he has to Clarence about Hal. Uh, well, first, uh, my first sense of uh, Henry in this scene is that he's suspicious. He's suspicious of uh, what will follow this apparent victory over the rebels. Uh, mm. How successful has this been? What's, what's gonna be the misfortune that follows this good event? He's, he's waiting for the other shoe to drop. Uh, he's, he's distrustful of his son, Hal. Where is he? What's he doing? Who's he with? Why aren't you there with him? And then he, he uh, is trying to teach Clarence 
how he needs to be careful of his older brother when he becomes the king because uh, Hal can be dangerous when he's the king. He can harm your friends, he can harm your brothers, and mm -hmm. you're in a position to protect all of those people that you care about because he particularly loves you among all other people. And so make sure you use that. That's a tool that you have to use for the protection of, of others. Mm. And um, so, uh, and he gives them specific examples about, you know, how to, you have to, you have to watch out for his moods. He's moody. He's very <laughs> generous. He's a good hearted fellow. But then again, when incensed, he's flint. And watch, watch out for that. Make sure you treat him delicately when, when his mood has changed because he can be dangerous. And then when, we, then when uh, I learned that he's not dining at Windsor, that he's in London with his cheap side mates, <laughs> then, uh, then that, that raises the, the, the anger and, and, and confirms the suspicion that I've had about him for years that, yeah. that uh, those corrupt people around him just, just feed on him and he's so vulnerable to them. And what's he gonna be like after I'm gone? I dread the future uh, with nobody to control him because he's, he's, he's unreliable, he's corruptible and you've gotta watch out for him. I Absolutely. Yeah, Noah. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, it's just funny because I heard those lines and I felt very differently about what he would, you know, because there's kind of a caring and knowing. And this feels like the most his father says about the true nature of Hal. Um, I'm thinking that one of the things that's at stake here is the now that I've seized the throne, that I want the line of succession to remain intact. And I don't want uh, posterity to turn against my heirs because uh, of their misconduct uh, in this position. Uh, so, uh, and I'm and I'm really worried about whether Hal will be a, a a reliable custodian of of the throne. Yeah, I yeah. I think there's. Go ahead, Noah. Go ahead. Well, it's just I I agree that there's this fear of what is Hal going to become. Because he knows that, like, I'm, I'm not well. I won't be king forever. How's, you know, the prince is going to become the king. What will he be? But there's also lines in here about, like, for the cold blood he did naturally inherit of his father he hath. He feels himself and his son. And I, it, it very strongly feels to me like this is the moment when, you know, before he's like, I don't understand why he's making these choices. I don't understand his nature. And all of a sudden he's outlining everything Hal does in like black and white. And like, I see how he, he gets in these moody phases and, you know, and then he's a, you know, he has his friends who are drunkards. And then he, and to me, it feels like the most compassionate his father has been towards him in this speech. Good. Let me let me add to what I said. Then let me modify that. In addition to protecting your brothers and friends from Hal, you're protecting Hal. Yeah, exactly. From his own bad impulses. Exactly. So there's that in this too. Yes. Thanks, Noah. Yeah, yeah. I, I I like that a lot. I think there's um there's there is it, it is like they've turned over a leaf. This isn't the same king that was berating Hal. Uh, 
in Act 3 of Henry IV, Part 1, where he's basically just comparing him to Richard without really, it seems like he sort of doesn't know him. And this is much more particular comments about him, not about comparing him to somebody else. This is very much about the good and the bad of Hal um, and, 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 and what he is. I think it's kind of extraordinary. If I was Humphrey of Gloucester, I would be like so shattered that my father was talking about how much more one of my brothers loved the other brother than they loved me. I mean, it's just like that to me is the kind of extraordinary thing. Like if I was Humphrey, I'd be like, should I leave? Like, this is awkward. <laughs> where where do those two brothers stand in succession? Because I was I was listening to this and I was kind of wondering where where does Colville stand versus Humphrey in succession? Oh, um, so Humphrey is the youngest brother, and okay. Hal and Thomas, the Duke of Clarence, are the two oldest. So Thomas is the right. second the second Clarence. born, and then John is the third born, and Humphrey okay. is the the fourth son. Um, okay. Yeah. So it's like he at at the time I think Thomas would be the 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 sort of backup heir to the crown, as it were, um, an heir and a spare, as they say. <laughs> right. Um, Is this the Duke Humphrey of Duke Humphrey's Library at Oxford? I have no idea. He was a very important Humphrey, <laughs> for sure, and he sort of ruled the kingdom as protector for. Hal's son, Henry the the sixth, for a very long time, and was a very, very important, influential uncle, um, who, who was sort of protector of the crown. Um, I'm not sure if it's the same hum Humphrey. Um, it may well be. I mean, <laughs> we're talking about the the same time period. I, I remember I stayed at Balliol College in Oxford. I was there doing a program for a month, and uh, that was. Uh, Founded in like 1294, I believe, which would be uh, even earlier than this play is taking place. Um, so it's entirely possible that um, it's the same person. Um, I love this bit about the fattest soil to weeds. Um, fattest here meaning the most fertile and rich soil is where the most weeds uh, come in. And here we have this garden imagery again, right? That we had in uh, Richard II with the gardeners about the realm being a garden that needs to be taken care of. You need to wound the bark. You need to be careful that no species uh, in your garden starts to take over. You have to cull things away. You have to be a good gardener to be a good ruler. And so it's interesting to me that we have all of these natural images that sort of begin to creep in. And then that, that final image before Westmoreland comes in about the bee and the, we're going to, you're going to, you like bees apparently, because you're going to have a whole speech about them in this scene <laughs> or in the next scene, I guess. And uh, the, the, her comb, meaning the honeycomb, it's, it's seldom when the bee leaves the treasure right in a, in a dead putrefying thing. <laughs> Um, so it's, 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 it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting response to Warwick's very interesting argument about the purpose of Hal's, um, uh, hanging out with it. these people. Yeah. I don't buy his, uh, positive spin on that. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> um, Liam, tell I me about this Warwick right. speech. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it totally just gives, it brings me back again to King Henry, the, the part one, um, 
it's it's like that that defense Hal uses like I, yeah. I you know I, I'm gonna break through the what is it the mists help me know yeah <laughs> vapors the, the vapors, vapors, yeah. vapors that strangled you or whatever yeah that kind of you know like like you know he he's he's just and and also yeah he's got to get an idea of who he's ruling you know he's got to know them really well in order to be a king but then he'll you know take henry's philosophy later uh, his dad's philosophy I yeah say. i i love this line the prince but studies his companions like a strange tongue wherein to gain the language it's it's like he needs to learn their language which is a wonderful very shakespearean thing right of course how is knowledge passed through spoken language it's a it's just a fascinating uh idea and again, Warwick seems to me to be the most conciliatory of all of these counselors. He's just always like, don't worry, it, it's going to be okay. He just seems like you would want this guy to be a counselor for you. He's just very calming and very sort of like, let's not get too hasty. Let's not be too worried. Things have a way of working themselves. It's just like very calm presence. I really like Warwick. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so we, we have, obviously we're starting this scene as, as you, as you put Eric with some, a, a lot of talk about the anxieties about, uh, and worries about Hal. And he seems to be of two minds about Hal, um, both wanting to protect him and, and kind of wanting him to protect himself, <laughs> uh, from his worst instincts. Um, so then we're going to have a whole bunch of news come in here. So we have Westmoreland followed by Harcourt. Um, another another ally. So many freaking names in this play. Who's here? Westmoreland. Health to my sovereign, a new happiness added to that that I am to deliver. Prince John, your son, doth kiss your grace's hand. Mowbray, the bishop's group, Hastings, and all are brought to the correction of your law. There is not now a rebel's sword unsheathed, but peace puts forth her olive everywhere. No matter how this action hath been born, here at more leisure may your highness read, with every course in his particular. Oh, Westmoreland, thou art a summer bird, which ever in the haunch of winter sings the lifting up of day. Look, here's more news. From enemies, heavens keep your majesty, and when they stand against you, may they fall as those that I am come to tell you of. The Earl Northumberland and the Lord Bardolf with a great power of English and of Scots are by the Sheriff of Yorkshire overthrown. The manner and true order of the fight, this packet, pleaseth you, contains at large. And wherefore should these good news make me sick? Will fortune never come with both hands full, but set her fair words still in foulest terms? She either gives a stomach and no food, such are the poor in health, or else a feast and takes away the stomach, such are the rich that have abundance and enjoy it not. I should rejoice now at this happy news. And now my sight fails and my brain is giddy. Oh me, come near me now, I am much ill. Comfort your majesty. Oh, my father. My sovereign lord, cheer up yourself, look up. Be patient, princes. You do know these fits are with his majesty very ordinary. Stand from him, give him air, he'll straight be well. 
No, no, he cannot long hold out these pangs. The incessant care and labor of his mind hath wrought the mure and could confine it in so thin that life looks through and will break out. The people fear me, for they do observe unfathered heirs and loath, loathly births of nature. The seasons change their manners as the year has found some months asleep and leaped over them. The river hath thrice flowed, no ebb between. And the old folk times doting chronicles say it did so a little time before that our great-grandsire Edward sicked and died. Speak lower, princes, for the king recovers. This apoplexy will certainly be his end. I pray you, take me up and bear me hence into some other chamber. Softly pray. So this is, um, in the folio, this is a continuous <sighs> scene. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly a very difficult to decide whether to continue on because he does say, take me into another room. But then he also has the first line of the next scene. And then at the end of that scene, he's going to say, go take me back to the other room. So it's, it's a bit <laughs> tricky to know exactly what to do here with this transition. Um, but yeah, so we have, we, we get this, the, the, the apoplexy, right? The sort of sudden fits have become very common with him. I love his speech about fortune not ever giving with both hands and this whole thing about the poor who are hungry and the rich who aren't hungry and have all the all the food and this interesting images that Clarence and Gloucester have about nature being again disordered right unordered maybe would be a more Shakespearean construction um, there is there is a lack of order and very weird things are happening in the natural world which to the Elizabethans would signify that some great change is about to happen uh, either the death of a king or some other big, big thing. Ariana, mm -hmm. just interject here. I think it's really interesting that tomorrow uh, Jupiter and Saturn will meet yes. and yes. they've done this in this exact configuration uh, in 1405, the time of Henry IV. Wow. Brilliant. Yeah, Brilliant. We're working on this. That is awesome. That yeah. is so cool. Thank you for bringing that up. And everyone, please definitely go look tomorrow night. It's like Southwest, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's beautiful. I'm very, I'm very excited to see. Ooh. Right after, um, this is right wonderful. Sunsets not long after. That's a yeah. Nice yeah. Well, and also, you know, how, how very um, appropriate. We're having a pretty big upheaval in our world right now. <laughs> Wonderful. So, and any sort of observations about about that that sort of second bit of that of that scene, or shall we say, section of a longer scene, depending on how you choose to stage this? It seems pretty straightforward, uh, language-wise. There there wasn't a, a whole lot of difficult uh, language. I did want to mention that the uh, Clarence's line hath wrought the muir. Um, a muir was a wall. Um, so it, it's a really fascinating image that all of this care and labor has sort of eroded this wall that's supposed to to hold in his life and that it's now going to break and his life will flow out, um, which I think is a quite a remarkable image. And care being something that 
is a, has a very negative connotation in this play, right? The care um, that is sort of laid upon the king is what's preventing him from sleeping. Here, Clarence is making the, the argument that the care is what's going to essentially break open, break his life apart. And, um, and Hal's going to have a line in the next scene or continuous scene that the cares have eaten the soul of his father. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting. I think we think of care in a very positive sense, but in, in, in this play, care is very negative. It's, a, it's a, something that consumes you and, um, and is not good for your health. <laughs> so speaking of ill health, shall we get right into the, the next scene or the, I guess, continuous scene uh, where we're going to have a, a, it's the final scene of Henry IV? Let there be no noise made, my gentle friends, unless some dull and favorable hand will whisper music to my weary spirit. Call for the music in the other room. Set me the crown upon my pillow here. His eye is hollow and he changes much. Less noise, less noise. Who saw the Duke of Clarence? I am here, brother, full of heaviness. How now, rain within doors and none abroad? How doth the king? Exceeding ill. Heard he the good news yet? Tell it him. He altered much upon the hearing it. If he be sick with joy, he'll recover without physic. Not so much noise, my lords. Sweet prince, speak low. The king your father is disposed to sleep. Let us withdraw into the other room. Uh, will it please your grace to go along with us? No, I will sit and watch here by the king. Why doth the crown lie there upon his pillow, being so troublesome a bedfellow? O polished perturbation, golden care that keeps the ports of slumber open wide to many a watchful night. Sleep with it now, yet not so sound and half so deeply sweet as he whose brow with homely biggin bound snores out the watch of the night. O oh, majesty, when thou dost pinch thy bearer, thou dost sit like a rich armor worn in heat of day that scaldst with safety. By his gates of breath there lies a downy feather which stirs not. Did he suspire that light and weightless down perforce must move? My gracious lord, my father, this sleep is sound indeed. This is a sleep that from this golden wriggle hath divorced so many English kings. Thy due from me is tears and heavy sorrows of the blood, which nature, love, and filial tenderness shall, O oh, dear father, pay thee plentifully. My due from thee is this imperial crown, which as immediate from thy place and blood derives itself to me. Lo, where it sits, which God shall guard, and put the world's whole strength into one giant arm. It shall not force this lineal honor from me. This from thee will I to mine leave, as tis left to me. I just want to briefly pause here and, um, and just... Uh, talk about some of the the interesting things about that that speech i just wanted to note that the oh polished perturbation exclamation point 
golden care, exclamation point, oh majesty, exclamation point, are three of the very, very few times in the folio that there is actually an exclamation point, which to me is very, very significant. In, in a lot of contemporary editions, there's exclamation points all over the place, but these are three of the only ones that I have actually found and very interesting that there are three of them in one speech. Um, I think that just speaks to a level of very heightened emotion and um, something very big going on. Um, and then biggin, homely biggin bound. Um, a biggin was a sort of um, a nightcap. So he's sort of talking about the, the, the difference between the sleep of someone who wears a crown and the sleep with someone who wears a nice comfy nightcap. And then wriggle, which is maybe the funniest word ever. Um, a wriggle here means a circle or a ring. Um, so it's obviously uh, speaking about the crown. Um, but I just wanted to mention that exclamation point bit because that is to me very significant. Did you did you have any thoughts about this 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 speech, Noah? I mean, it it, it he does not want to be king. Yeah, <laughs> he really, you know, as as divided as he is in Henry Four Part One, and then this he, where he he he's you know very much only shown when he's in doing in matters of the court this speech is very much of you know accepting and and sadness around taking the 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 crown on his own head yeah and 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 i you know this speech i feel very much mirrors richard ii which of course you know his father as you pointed out compares him constantly to richard ii yeah and you know then there's also this you know you see more of the the relationship in this show between him and his actual father where you know you just saw his father describing how in a very specific way of like how has these flaws we need to be weary of them even for how and then you see here how showing actual sorrow over the his father's status and how it almost seems like it it is part of what is killing his father mm -hmm. absolutely i think I, I like that she's, he's a very reluctant king. I think there is, there is a weariness to this speech that is interesting. It almost seems to me that he takes the crown because he wants to take away this, this care from his father. He wants to take it, he sort of sees it as the murderer weapon of his father and he wants to get it away from his father. And he does think his father is dead, which is of course going to lead to a rather awkward encounter where his father is not dead and is completely furious that he has taken the crown away. And it's just like, oh, Hal, really? Oh, man. But um, there, is a, there is a really interesting, um, there's a bitterness to this speech, I think, that is really palpable from, from, from the language. Scalding. You know, he's talking about that the crown is supposed to be this beautiful symbol of power right but in a very shakespearean sense we have i think you're absolutely right to point out the 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 connections to the richard's hollow crown speech um in richard the second very famous hollow crown there's nothing nothing lives in that crown but death um he's the one who reigns supreme and this also seems to be this this crown hurts the wearer this crown scalds with safety um this crown keeps 
keeps your eyes open when you should be sleeping. This crown is not a good thing. And that is going to be a common theme that you will have right before the Battle of Agincourt, this incredible speech about how much it sucks to be the king <laughs> and how complicated life, life is by this power. Wonderful. So now let's see this wonderful, awkward moment. So he goes with the crown on his head out of the door to go cry, essentially, and mourn his father's loss. And within moments, I, I must say, I, I do get a little bit of a flashback of when he had this his speech over Falstaff's dead body, seemingly dead body in part one, leaves and Falstaff immediately sits up and goes, emboweled, right? I, I feel like this is kind of a, this play, that moment, and it just gets to me like, hell, you gotta check their pulse, buddy. You gotta <laughs> check their pulse. You keep thinking these people are dead, and they're, they're definitely not dead. So um, just put get... just put a mirror under their nose. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's all you have to do. Anyway, it's it is funny to me because it's like he thought one father was dead, who turned out not to be, and now he thinks his real father is dead and turns out not to be. So um... I, I just know, as a director, I mean, what do you do with this? It's so comic. It is. It's I crazy. think you lean into the comedy. Actually, <laughs> I I think there is nothing more Shakespearean than giving you a funny moment in what should be a serious moment. Right. It's it's the porter right after the Macbeths have have murdered uh, Duncan. It's it's the clown. The only clown that appears in Antony and Cleopatra is the one who brings in the snake to Cleopatra and has all this like goofy language. Like Shakespeare loves to do this is put comedy into very serious and tragic situations. Um, of course, I think it's not funny for the people who are involved but it's very funny for the audience, um, and I think I think we I think you lean into that. That that would be my that would be my um, probably inclination. <laughs> it's even funnier if Henry is snoring. Al <laughs> doesn't get it. Yeah. <laughs> snoring during the speech. Well, I I will say to, to to your point, Ari, about you know setting up something very dramatic and serious and then cutting it with something almost comedic in both Henry IV part one and part two, the big revelation intimate scenes between Hal and, and Bolingbroke are always cut off by someone walking in to give yeah. someone news. It's so true. Right. When we're in some like, Oh, we're having a moment. And then someone walks in and has this awkward moment of, I have to tell you guys something. <laughs> I have news that's five <laughs> days old. <laughs> like, absolutely. I totally agree. Uh, well, and I think it's interesting. Um, we have this, the King's next line, Warwick, Gloucester, Clarence. If it was, um, if it was Shakespeare's normal rhythm, it would be Warwick, Gloucester, Clarence, but it's three trochies in a, in a row. It's three, which is very unusual in Shakespeare to have three inverted feet, right? Where the emphasis is on the first syllable, not the second syllable, which is interesting to me. Obviously, he is very disturbed. That, that usually only happens when something big is happening for the character. So um, we'll go, we'll go from there and then we'll, we'll get through uh, three more gargantuan speeches um, that we have, like three of the biggest in the play. <laughs> so have fun, Eric and Noah. Ha ha ha, enjoy. <laughs> Warwick, Gloucester, Clarence. Doth the king call? What would your majesty? Why did you leave me here alone, my lords? We left the prince, my brother here, my liege, who undertook to sit and watch by you. The prince of Wales? 
Where is he? Let me see him. He is not here. Uh, the door is open. He is gone this way. He came not through the chamber where we stayed. Where is the crown? Who took it from my pillow? Uh, when he, when we withdrew, my liege, we left it here. The prince hath taken it hence. Go seek him out. Is he so hasty that he doth suppose my sleep my death? Find him, my lord of Warwick. Chide him hither. This part of his conjoins with my disease and helps to end me. See, sons, what things you are. How quickly nature falls into revolt when gold becomes her object. For this, the foolish, over-careful fathers have broke their sleep with thoughts, their brains with care, their bones with industry. For this, they have engrossed and piled up the cankered heaps of strange achieved gold. For this, they have been thoughtful to invest their sons with arts and martial exercises, when, like the bee, tolling from every flower, our thighs packed with wax, our mouths with honey, we bring it to the hive, and like the bees, are murdered for our pains. This bitter taste yields his engrossments to the ending father. Now where is he that will not stay so long till his friend's sickness hath determined me? My lord, I found the prince in the next room, washing with kindly tears his gentle cheeks, with such a deep demeanor and great sorrow that tyranny, which never quaffed but blood, would, by beholding him, have washed his knife with gentle eye drops. He is coming hither. But wherefore did he take away the crown? Lo, where he comes. Come hither to me, Harry. Depart the chamber, leave us here alone. I never thought to hear you speak again. Thy wish was father, Harry, to that thought. I stay too long by thee, I weary thee. Dost thou so hunger for mine empty chair, that thou wilt needs invest thee with my honors before thy hour be ripe? O oh, foolish youth, thou seek'st the greatness that will overwhelm thee. Stay but a little, for my cloud of dignity is held from falling with so weak a wind that it will quickly drop. My day is dim. Thou hast stolen that which after some few hours were thine without offense, and at my death thou hast sealed up my expectations. Thy life did manifest thou lovest me not, and thou wilt have me die assured of it. Thou hidest a thousand daggers in thy thoughts, which thou hast wetted on thy stony heart to stab at half an hour of my life. What, canst thou not forbear me half an hour? Then get thee gone and dig my grave thyself and bid the merry bells ring to thine ear that thou art crowned, not that I am dead. Let all the tears that should be due my hearse be drops of balm to sanctify thy head. Only compound me with forgotten dust, 
Give that which gave thee life unto the worms. Pluck down my officers, break my decrees, for now a time has come to mock at form. Harry the fifth is crowned. Up, vanity, down, royal state. All you sage counselors, hence, <coughs> and to the English court, assemble now from every region, apes of idleness. Now, neighbor confines, purge you of your scum. Have you a ruffian that will swear, drink, dance, revel the night, rob, murder, and commit the oldest sins, the newest kind of ways? Be happy, he will trouble you no more. England shall double guilt his trouble guilt. England shall give him office, honor, might. For the fifth Harry from curbed license plucks the muzzle of restraint, and the wild dog shall flesh his tooth on every innocent. Oh, my poor kingdom, sick with civil blows, when that my care could not withhold thy riots, what wilt thou do when riot is thy care? Oh, thou wilt be a wilderness again, peopled with wolves, thy old inhabitants. Pardon me, my liege, but for my tears, the moist impediments unto my speech. I had forestalled this dear and deep rebuke. Ere you with grief had spoke, and I had heard the course of it so far, there is your crown, and he that wears the crown immortally long guards it yours. If I affect it more than as your honor and as your renown, let me no more from this obedience rise, which my most inward true and duteous spirit teacheth this prostrate and exterior bending. God witness with me when I here came in and found no course of breath within your majesty, how cold it struck my heart. If I do feign, oh, let me in my presence wildness, present wildness die and never live to show the incredulous world the noble change that I have purposed, coming to look on you, thinking you dead, and dead almost, my liege, to think you were. I spake unto this crown as having sense, and thus abraded it. The care on thee depending hath fed upon the body of my father. Therefore thou best of gold art worse of gold. Other, less fine and carrot is more precious, preserving life in medicine potable. But thou, most fine, most honored, most renowned, hast eat thy bearer up. Thus, my most royal liege, accusing it, I put it on my head to try with it as with an enemy that had before my face murdered my father, the quarrel of my true inheritor. But if it did infect my blood with joy or swell my thoughts to any strain of pride, if any rebel or vain spirit of mine did with the least affection of a welcome give entertainment to the might of it, let God forever keep it from my head and make me as the poorest vassal is that doth with awe and terror kneel to it.
God put it in thy mind to take it hence, that thou mightst win the more thy father's love, pleading so wisely in excuse of it. Come hither, Harry, sit thou by my bed, and here, I think, the very latest counsel that ever I shall breathe. God knows, my son, by what bypaths and indirect crooked ways I met this crown. And I myself know well how troublesome it sat upon my head. To thee it shall descend with better quiet, better opinion, better confirmation. For all the soil of the achievement goes with me into the earth. It seemed to me but as an honor snatched with boisterous hand, and I had many living to upbraid my gain of it by their assistances, which daily grew to quarrel and to bloodshed, wounding supposed peace. All these bold fears thou seest with peril I have answered, for all my reign hath been but as a scene acting that argument. And now my death changes the mood. For what in me was purchased falls upon thee in a more fairer sort. So thou the garland wearest successively. Yet though thou stand'st more sure than I could do, thou art not firm enough, since griefs are green. And all thy friends, which thou must make thy friends, have but their stings and teeth newly ta'en out, by whose fell working I was first advanced, and by whose power I well might lodge a fear to be again displaced, which to avoid, I cut them off and had a purpose now to lead out many to the Holy Land lest rest and lying still might make them look too near unto my state. Therefore, my Harry, be it thy course to busy giddy minds with foreign quarrels. That action, hence borne out, may waste the memory of the former days. More would I, but my lungs are wasted so that strength of speech is utterly denied me. How I came by the crown, O oh God, forgive, and grant it may with thee in true peace live. You won it, wore it, kept it, gave it me. Then plain and right must my possession be, which I, with more than with a common pain, gainst all the world will rightfully maintain. Look, look. Here comes my John of Lancaster. Health, peace, and happiness to my royal father. Thou bringst me happiness and peace, son John. But health, alack, with youthful wings is flown from this bare withered trunk. Upon thy sight, my worldly business makes a period. Where is my Lord of Warwick? My Lord of Warwick. Doth any name particular belong unto the lodging where I first did swoon? Tis called Jerusalem, my noble lord. 
Lord be to God, even there my life must end. It hath been prophesied to me many years, I should not die but in Jerusalem, which vainly I suppose the Holy Land. But bear me to that chamber, there I'll lie. In that Jerusalem shall Harry die. Oh. <laughs> Goodness. Well, at least we got some freaking father-son closure there. My God. What a what a whiplash of a scene. Eric and Noah, what are what are, what are your sort of thoughts and experiences of of uh of reading of reading those characters? Oh, it was it was uh it was wearing, let me say. Yeah. <laughs> I thought my feeling, my thought. Well, my goodness. I'm I I've I've wanted to believe him. And finally, I do. Mm. I've been wanting to, but couldn't. But now I can. Yeah. Oh, I love that. There, there is a. I mean, this this relationship of father and son is so much about these sort of phases of redemption um, over these two plays. And there's there's the initial redemption in Act Three. There's a second redemption um, when uh, Hal saves his life. Um, and then this seems, it's like third time's a charm here. <laughs> like it seems like we needed, we needed three moments, um, in order to sort of fully convince, uh, the king. I, I, I particularly love these last three big speeches, um, in this, in this scene. They're so rich, uh, with imagery and antithesis and repetition and just emotion. They're just really powerful. Um, Noah, what was um, what? What were your sort of feelings and thoughts going through going through this? I mean, it's interesting that you know the the false closure when he thinks his father is dead is all about the power of the throne, mm. you know, the power of the crown, and and you know Hal's dissension of taking it, and then he comes back and it's more about you know the. I wouldn't take this from you because I know it's not a good thing. And I, it, you know, it's closure with his actual father. It's, it's not Henry the fourth. He speaks to in this last monologue, it's bullying broke as a man. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And he's speaking to his father. I think, I yeah. think you're absolutely right that it's, it's, it stopped being about, it finally turns to the familial as opposed to mm -hmm. the dynastic relationship, right? It, it becomes a very human um, interaction as opposed to something about, I mean, I, I, I get the chills with that last bit about, uh, therefore my Harry be at thy course to busy giddy minds with foreign quarrels. I mean, oh boy, is that ever a piece of advice that governments have used to unite their people throughout history is just go invade someone else and it'll get the whole country together and it's exactly what henry v does from yeah. the first scene of henry v he goes wait so i can invade france are we good okay yeah. let's go you know it's it's incredible it's it, it gives me chills a little bit i'm like this is the wisdom <laughs> this is the wisdom is more war more violence oh god um but it, it it definitely seems to work but we'll say that it seems to be a highly effective argument <laughs> henry henry is uh 
He's a he's a power politician in his final moments, always. Absolutely. I mean, that's what he's been all along. He's 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 never been a nurturing, affectionate father. That probably didn't exist in his time. But his life has been for for power and political strategy. And so there's a final lesson he needs yeah. to teach his son before reality yeah. takes him, which is just right there in the room with him. And it and it has uh, the presence of mortality has uh, made him willing to believe his son and embrace him, but also uh, to teach him this last lesson. Absolutely. And it's and it's sort of for his own safety and for the safety of the realm. How can we yes. create stability by creating instability outside of our country? Right. There's there's right. a really there is a kind of balancing act that's that's going on. And then this ultimate irony about the Jerusalem, right, that, 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 that sort of permeates the final moments. Uh, it's, it's such a sort of delicious ending to the man who is obsessed with returning to the Holy Land. Um, it's it's uh, deeply ironic. Would, would Henry IV have been on a crusade as yes. a young man? He fought okay. in the crusade as a young man. And okay. in fact, I think part of his banishment was, was spent... I could be wrong about that. I know he spent a lot of his time in Paris, but he I think at least as a young man he he was in some form of the crusades. <laughs> Not sure which one. There sure were a hell of a lot of them, but yes, this was a realm that he was familiar with. Interestingly, as was Thomas Mowbray, you know, his chief rival and uh who fought in Jerusalem in in his banishment before dying in Venice after retiring from, from warfare. Um, I think he'd want to avoid the Holy Land if he knew <laughs> yeah. had a prophecy that he was going to die there. But... It is interesting, isn't it? <laughs> he doesn't seem to be uh, risk averse here. <laughs> but also, I think for him, the, the Holy Land represented re redemption um, for his for his sin of taking the crown and if he could if he could balance that out by what he saw as good works um of invading another yet another yet more warfare that would sort of work as his as his as part of his redemption i'm really glad i don't know why i'm i'm just really glad that he gets to have all four of his sons with him at the end i i quite like that that they each get a little a tiny little moment with him at least and like his own, you know, his own father's death when he was banished and his father died yeah. in his house as his, you know, lands and property were being stolen. Yeah, that's a wonderful point. This is a very different, more family oriented ending than uh, than his own father got. His own father died and then immediately in Shakespeare's play has his lands and money confiscated by Richard, prompting uh, Bolingbroke's return to the country. That's a that's a wonderful come full circle. Were there any uh, sort of closing thoughts on this very big act, unusually I, long act? Act four tends to be the shortest act in the play, and it is the longest in this play. I I don't I mean I cried just hearing you read those lines, Eric. You know mm. I I cried in Henry four. You know during the the scene when and when Hal makes his oath to his father and his father rebukes him and then I I'm crying again, hearing these these lines about his father. You know not necessarily accepting him as a son but accepting him as a successor, which is mm -hmm. what he always wanted Hal to be more than a son. Yeah. And there's there's power 
and and that you know fathers with sons or daughters you know accepting them as i don't i don't know if it's equals but as their line their 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 lineage what what they're leaving behind you know giving their own life meaning you know there's there's power in parents saying i you know you is what i'm leaving behind is worth my own life i think family love is probably a fairly modern thing but family loyalty uh goes back uh, through history and i don't know that there's we, we can expect to see love in this family in that century <laughs> but loyalty very strong very strong uh compelling priority um that is definitely a, a, an important um, distinction and, and maybe actually what what distinguishes the types of feelings that um, Hal has, you know, Hal's surrogate father Falstaff. I think he certainly has love for him, but he has loyalty to his father, which is an interesting conundrum to find oneself in with that sort of split. Yeah, it's um, I, th I think to me it, it, it sort of underlines a hypothesis that I have had that the history plays, when you really boil them down, are about their family dramas, right? They're, they're about family and who do we define as our family, particularly in these, these Henry plays. Um, who is our family and what do we owe our family and what's our duty to our family? And what happens when you betray your family? And that gets blown up to a sort of what happens when you betray your country. But I think so much of these plays is 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 an inquisition, a sort of close look at very complicated power and family dynamics um, that were basically the coin of the realm. This is what power looked like during this time period. Um, there's an it's sort of equated with uh, family um, in a very interesting way.